Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparable great, incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything, For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Todd Pickett, and it's a great pleasure to be with you again. I get to come by a couple, three times a year. And speak with you. Uh, I know more people uh, here than the church I go to. Um, I have some longtime friends here. After the first service, my longtime friends said, Don't call us old friends as I did in the first service. So I have some longtime friends here. Um, And so it's great to be with you. Um, The passage that was just read from the beginning of Ephesians has really caught my attention lately. I'm interested in what uh, people of the Bible pray for. Um, Of course, I have my long list of complaints that I pray about. But I'm curious, what is it that the leaders and figures of the Bible prayed for when we get those prayers recorded in Scripture? And I was particularly intrigued by this one. And particularly this part of this one that you just heard in verse 17, where Paul prays for the constellation of churches in Ephesus. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. So it's curious. He actually prays initially that those Um, in the body who we would say know Christ. And sometimes that's how we refer to other Christians, don't we? We say, well, so-and-so knows God. And -and so-and-so, yes, so-and-so knows God. So what does Paul pray for people who know God? He prays that they would know him better. But then he prays, actually, uh, to the God of our Father, um, to the God our Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would actually do that work. That the Holy Spirit would illuminate the eyes of our heart so that we actually would know him better as well as our hope, our incomparably great riches we have in Christ um, and the glorious inheritance. And he prays again that the Spirit would do this. That we would be able to perceive the glory of these things. 
And I think to really appreciate that this comes from Paul's heart for the church. Not just for the church in Ephesus, but for the whole church. I think we have to know a little bit about the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, One of my colleagues at Biola, Professor Clint Arnold, writes in his commentary on the Ephesians that Ephesians is distinct from Paul's other letters in this way. That there's no kind of conflict or situation or glaring problem that has prompted the apostle to write. So Paul's other letters, for instance, are generated from a crisis of belief or behavior. If you kind of see the map of the Mediterranean and some of the places Paul visited and wrote to, the stars of the the churches he actually wrote to here, often there was a problem occurring, an emergency in belief or behavior that prompted the writing of the letters. For instance, the Thessalonians and Thessalonica were so sure the Lord would return any day that they stopped working. So Paul had to write them a letter about that. (laughs) The Corinthians were experiencing divisions over kind of loyalties to different leaders, fragmentation. They were divided by by some arrogance over their spiritual giftedness. They were fragmenting over issues of worship. Morally, they were a mess. They got two letters. (laughs) The view of Christ among the Colossians was under threat from some heresy. So Paul had to straighten their Christology out. They got a letter. The Galatian Christians were falling back into legalism, a faith kind of based on works. They got a letter. When you read Ephesians, however, while there are some issues mentioned, they're kind of more the day-in, day-out stuff. The importance of walking in a manner worthy of the calling. The importance of unity between Gentiles and Jews. It was a mixed congregation. Wisdom for family, marriage, and work. The need to appreciate the different gifts in the body. But you don't sense in the letter that these are crises. And that's partly indicated because you can read the first three chapters of Ephesus, of Ephesians and there's not a single command. There's not a single warning. Paul just gets to talk about the glory of God and what we have in Christ. He is in no hurry to solve a problem. This is a letter for the church, the slow and steady church maturing as the body of Christ. So what does Paul, who's now free from any kind of uh, urgency, what does he pray for when he can just pray his heart for the church? Paul, the apostle, the missionary, the church planner, what does he pray for? Well, he prays that they would know God better. In Ephesians 3.16, he actually extends that prayer where he says, I pray that you would know the height and breadth and depth of the love of Christ. In both cases, they are prayers. Because it's something we need the Holy Spirit to do in us. And it's from this passage in Ephesians 1 as well as others that we get this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And it's called the doctrine of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Spirit's work to take what we already know and to illuminate these truths for us. That having heard them, we would receive them more deeply. We get discussion of this doctrine in another place in 1 Corinthians 2. Where Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he says, Now we, believers, have received the spirit of the world. Have received this, have, sorry, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So if you're a believer, the spirit lives in you. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught just by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So he indicates that those who have the spirit are spiritual, not because we're so mature or we're so pious, but we're called spiritual because we have the Holy Spirit. The word is pneumatike, pneuma, 
Spirit. So he says the part of the goal of the Spirit is to help us understand and interpret and value spiritual truths because we have the Spirit in us who can do that. And then he says the natural person, whom he calls the physike, the physical, who's the non-believers, do not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. They're ridiculous. And he doesn't understand them because they must be spiritually discerned. So the natural person can't really grab the things of the Spirit because these are things that like needs to be known by like. The Spirit in us needs to recognize the goodness of these things. And the natural person doesn't have this. It doesn't mean a non-believer can't read the Scriptures and understand them. Well, this is what the passage seems to be saying. Natural people can do that. They can read and understand grammar and vocabulary. Um, They can maybe even appreciate the ethics of Christianity or, or certain truths taught there. But what the Spirit is able to do in us is to not just help us kind of know what it says, but to actually illuminate it so that we find it beautiful, so that we find it good, so that we love it. The doctrine of of the illumination of the Holy Spirit does not produce new revelations or doctrines necessarily. I mean, if you think you've come up with a new doctrine, you need to go right to leadership and tell them about it. (laughs) And we'll probably need to straighten you out. Um, (laughs) No, it takes what we already know and it illuminates it so that we increasingly believe it. That we increasingly receive it as true. And that we increasingly love these truths. That's what the Holy Spirit does in illuminating our hearts. To help us know, love, and believe the truths ever more deeply. The Reformation theologian John Calvin says this. Faith thus is a singular gift of God. So as to be able to taste the truth of God... And in that, his heart is established. Our hearts are established. And the Spirit increases this by degrees, increases our faith and belief by degrees. To make it something we don't just know in our heads, but increasingly in our bones, just like you know fear in your bones, or shame in your bones, or guilt in your bones. You don't have to be taught those things. But we want to know love in our bones, so that we don't have to secure ourselves in the world against other people which leads to envy and competition. We didn't know hope in our bones so we would have courage and fortitude. And we need to know um, wisdom in our bones so that we can be lights to the world. So this kind of illumination of the Holy Spirit is really more like a tasting knowledge than just a learning knowledge. I mean, do you ever try to describe something, how something tastes to someone else? You ever try to do that? It's really hard. You have to resort to analogies. You have to say, well, it, it, it tastes like chicken. Um, So it's something they're going to have to kind of taste themselves. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. He takes things we already kind of know and helps us taste and see, for instance, that the Lord is good. Actually, Paul uses another metaphor for this. He says in our passage, and this is a metaphor he doesn't use any place else in Scripture, the Holy Spirit enlightens the eyes of our heart, illuminates the eyes of our heart, as if our heart could have eyes to see. That is what the Spirit does. I tried to find a a kind of image of this online, the eyes of the heart, and everything ended up looking like Mr. Potato Head. (laughs) Kind of a heart and eyes and didn't look good. So to actually understand this kind of metaphor, opening the eyes of our heart, we have to know a little bit about the biblical view of the heart. And I've been here and taught about this before, but this is kind of a reminder. For the Hebrews... 
the heart was both thought, will, and affect or emotion. So, for instance, for the Hebrews, the mind was in the heart. In fact, what the heart does most in Scripture is it thinks. It believes. Passages like, he counseled in his heart, or he planned in his heart, or he thought in his heart. So, unlike our contemporary culture where we think of the heart as just emotion, I heart New York, right? Um, The heart in the Scripture is one of deep belief, or it's where our deepest beliefs lie, whatever they may be. The heart is also the place of our will or our resolve when we say he plans in his heart. It's, it's, the heart is the place where we actually resolve on things, the will. So in the heart is the mind, in the heart is the will, and of course in the heart is affect, is emotion. And so the biblical idea of the heart is this kind of bundle of thoughts, desires, and will. And those hearts, desires, and wills are looking for something to want. Looking for something to set on. In fact, that's what we say about the heart, don't we? We say, my heart was set on this. Well, that's what a heart does. The heart is designed to set on things. It's kind of externally focused. since We're looking for something to set on, and that's how it should be. And when the heart sees something that it wants, and is able to understand that with the mind and, and the emotions and resolve on it, wow, it latches onto things powerfully. You know, I was sitting with my niece a few months ago. Her name is Nellie. She's a young, young, she was an infant. And, you know, infants are just, they're good, they're, there's a point where they're just grabbing things. They're just grabbing things. And they're putting things in their mouth. And they're just grabbing things. They're, and that is almost an image of the heart. The heart is looking for grab things and taste them. That's what the heart is designed to do. So she grabbed my finger. And, she, you know, I knew she would. I stuck it out there. She grabbed it. And she wanted to put it in her mouth. And I didn't let her because that's gross. But it really was this image of the heart for me. And so to put this another way, you and I are natural worshipers. We're looking for something to love. Our hearts want to want. And so we often wonder, even not consciously, but we wake up in the morning, what should I want? What is it that I want that I should be wanting? And of course, advertisers know this, and they're cranking out an unending stream of things for us to want. Because advertisers are great anthropologists. They know what humans are like. Humans are at sea. What should I want? Give me something to want. But is there one thing we all want? What would that be? What is the thing that everybody, Christian or non-Christian, wants? Well, there's some good candidates for this, right? If you said love, well, you'd be right. We all want to love and be loved. If you said God... Well, yes, of course. Even people who don't know they're looking for God are looking for God. And you'd be right. If you said significance, well, I think that's true. People looking to know what their place in the world is, what the purpose of life or their life is. But there's an answer in Scripture that I think surrounds and and captures all of those. And it may surprise you, but this is what I think. I think everyone wants glory. It's mentioned twice in our passage. The glorious Father. So just like we were made to be lovers, we were made to experience glory. But let me define what glory is. And I get this from um, Rebecca Canindic de Young in her book called Vainglory. She says this, Glory breaks out when people notice something good and recognize its attractiveness or desirability and then typically express approval and praise. Let me read that again. Glory breaks out when people notice something good 
notice something good or true or beautiful, and they recognize its attractiveness or desirability, and then they typically express approval and praise. That's how you know that glory is breaking out. And of course, it happens every day among us, right? Usually, you know glory is breaking out in California because sooner or later, someone will say, that is awesome. (laughs) I was with one of my British friends, and I said, she was just visiting from England, and I said, that is awesome. She goes, oh, that's so California. Say that again. She got her phone out. (laughs) Take this back to England. That's awesome. I was with some Australian friends. You know what they say? They say, that is magic. Uh, I, I said it this summer when I got this photo from my daughter who was traveling abroad. Actually, awesomeness was not my first thought. <laughs> my first thought was relief. I'm glad she didn't tell me about this before she did it. My second thought is who lets people do this? <laughs> this is not Photoshop. She is touching the back of a tiger. And he is not chained. And I'm also ambivalent about animals in captivity. But... Once I got over all that, I finally had to admit, this was awesome. (laughs) What was awesome is to be that close to an animal with this power and beauty and those markings. You know, it's glorious. That that tiger is glorious. She discovered it was not always so great to get close to the glories of creation, as you see in this next picture. She's trying to smile here, but she literally couldn't get this guy out of her hair. My other daughter's an artist. Uh, she was up here along with, her, with Aaron, who's also an artist. And my, and my daughter, who's an artist, I'm not, I'm not really... Uh, I mean, I know what I like in terms of art, but I often don't really know what really great art is, I must say. But it's great to walk around with her and to let her instruct me and to say, Dad, this is really good. Because she, she can appreciate what real goodness is. And she can actually give up a, a glory proper to that. She can appreciate something good and beautiful, and she can express approval and praise for it. And that's true. Things that are good or true or beautiful deserve a certain amount of glory, which is to say notice and then subsequently praise. A well-made table is a good thing and deserves a certain amount of glory, a medical breakthrough, a musical performance. I know some of us feel embarrassed when, or even guilty when we receive notice and praise for something we're doing. But it's okay. It's okay to receive some notice and praise for an ability to solve problems or to uh, use musical skill or athletic skill or even beauty. It's not that nothing should receive glory besides God. It's that above all, God should be glorified. And of course, some things do receive more glory than they should, right? We think of our celebrity culture. That is an obvious example. We imagine... These people, whether athletic or in, in acting or in music, we imagine their whole lives as good and their whole lives as worthy of glory. But when we get close enough, we're inevitably disappointed because <laughs> we discover that there are other aspects of their lives that are not glorious. We've taken a part of their life that deserves glory and we've pasted onto the whole of their lives. And inevitably, we're disappointed. Why? Because you and I are looking for something to glorify. We're looking for something to worship. And not many things can bear the weight of that desire. 
to see and experience glory. And indeed, we all want to experience glory. We all desire to participate in it. And we're designed to, to some degree, to be connected with the good, the true, and the beautiful. To enjoy it. This explains, I think, why um, uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, have spread like wildfire. Because according to our definition of glory, when we notice something good and recognize its attractiveness, we not only want to express it, but we want to be close to it. We want to be close to what is glorious, hoping that there will be reflected glory. That's why we take selfies with things, right? We don't take thatties. That's called a picture. We take selfies because we want to share in the glory of the thing that is sharing the frame of the picture. And I'll say we're, we're designed for that. We're designed to want to take pleasure in a certain amount of glory ourselves. That is okay. We get hints of this in Colossians 3.3, a letter that is very close to Ephesians in its content. Where Paul writes in verse 3 of Colossians 3, When Christ, who is your life, appears... And then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the time to take a selfie. (laughs) When Christ appears and you appear with him in glory, now. (laughs) Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17, We all will with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and we will be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Did you catch that? As we look at Jesus, we ourselves are being transformed into ever-increasing glory. We get to experience and share the glory of Christ, which comes from the Lord, make no mistake, who is the Spirit. So yes, Paul suggests that we ourselves, as we look into the face of goodness, truth, and beauty, as we contemplate it, as we meditate on it, and as we meet him face to face, will be transformed more into his goodness. His beauty. His love. I said before that Paul was not addressing a crisis in Ephesus. But he was addressing a cultural context. The Ephesians lived in an atmosphere of competing glories. Ephesus itself was the leading city of the richest region of the empire. It was bustling. It was glamorous. It was a religiously pluralistic place. Its patron deity was Artemis. And there was a temple dedicated to her, of course, that was four times the size of the Parthenon. In Athens, if you can imagine that. So that means any Christian living anywhere in Ephesus could see it. And twice a week they'd have a parade, they'd parade her statues around, they'd move through the city, glorifying Artemis and praising her as the Queen of Heaven, as their Lord and Savior. At the same time, there were 50 other gods to worship in Ephesus. It was a tournament of glory. Magic was practiced widely throughout the regions. And magicians received fame and glory for their acts. Magic, you know, our modern technology is like ancient magic. It's, it's the ability to do wondrous things. Almost magical. The depiction here, of course, though, is the sorcerers who become Christians burning their magic books. And perhaps most evident of all was the glory of the Roman emperor and his family, who not only had temples dedicated to them, but were, them, were themselves considered gods, saviors, even eternal beings. All of these things, as Christians were living there, were being glorified in Ephesus. And it's into this context that he writes. Can you imagine a little church of 40 or 50 people meeting in a home surrounded by a culture that doesn't recognize the glory and the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of Jesus? I think many of us feel like we're increasingly in a culture where people just don't get it. They don't get the glory 
that we see. Um, And it's possible that Paul, having been gone for maybe upwards of seven years from Ephesus, that the church there was growing a little weary, that they were losing the vision amid the tournament of glory that was taking place around them. So Paul spends the rest of the letter not only instructing them, but praying for them that the Spirit would illuminate this. That he would illuminate, for instance, their identity in Christ. That out of his glorious riches, he prays in Ephesians 3, you'd be strengthened with, your, with power through your inner being, that you would know the glory of Christ's love for you, the height and breadth and length and depth. That he would have the strength, illumination is a kind of strength to comprehend that. And it's not the, the, it's not the strength here in, in Ephesians 3 is not the kind of brute force. I got a friend who's always telling me about some strong Christians that you know. And I always say, how much can he bench? Okay. <laughs> he says, that's not what I mean. I go, no. But it's not actually that kind of force. The strength here, the strength to have the capacity to know the love of Christ is more like, it's, it's more like a capacity. It's more like uh, taking in oxygen in your lungs. If I left us for a moment and ran around the building as fast as I could, I would come here and I would be panting wildly. Because I have not been running lately. I, could, I only have the capacity for a certain amount of oxygen. Now, if I were to do this every day, my capacity to take in oxygen would grow. And I would not be so spent. And this is the same idea here. The capacity to take in more and more of the infinite love of Christ is part of our calling. And this is something that the Holy Spirit will do with us. That's why Paul is praying it in Ephesians 3. That he would have the strength to comprehend the height and breadth and depth and length of the love of Christ. And you would know this love beyond knowledge. Or that the knowledge would be that illumination that the Spirit brings. So there's glory in the love of Christ. There's glory, as he'll pray later on or ask later on in Ephesians, in a manner worthy, walking in a manner worthy of the calling. There's glory in participating in obedience, in embodying goodness. As we come to actually know what goodness looks like and feels like as we put on the new self. So there's, there's glory in love. There's glory in goodness as we obey and walk it out. And there's glory in unity, which he'll pray for people in Ephesus. Again, a mixed community of Jews and Gentiles, basically a, a cross-ethnic community where there's a tradition of conflict and even violence. It is glorious when people from those different backgrounds come together and worship the same God. There is a glory in unity. It makes me recall the last U.S. Open in tennis uh, on the women's side. Uh, Sloane Stevens was the victor. Um, and it's one of those unprecedented moments. She was uh, a bit of an underdog, and um, she ended up winning the U.S. Open. And, of course, there's an appropriate kind of, as I said, glory to that moment. Someone who has a skill and kind of the thrill of a new person uh, winning the trophy. And so, of course, you know, they go around and they kiss the trophy and things like this. Um, and there's applause, and there's glory being given, expressing approval and praise, and that's cool. But you know what she did before that? Right when the match was over, she walked over to her opponent, who happened to be one of her best friends, Madison Keys, and she destroyed Madison Keys in this final. She pulled up a chair next to her, and just, we don't know what happened there, but they were laughing, and they were smiling, and she was reaching out, And you know what the talk on the news was? It wasn't actually, in the end, about the glory of the victory. It was the beauty of someone taking their chair, which had never been done, (laughs) 
in the U.S. Open tennis, taking their chair and walking over to the other side, planting it next to the person they defeated, and just kind of renewing their friendship. And that should have gotten a lot of attention. That is truly glorious. You know, when you come here every Sunday, what you're doing is you're recalibrating glory. We live in a tournament of glory. I think exponentially more than even the ancient world. There's many things to want. There's many things to love. There's many things to desire. Uh, And there's many ways that can be seductive. But you come back here every week and you say, Holy Spirit, teach us, illuminate our hearts into what is truly good, what is truly beautiful, what is truly worthy of our love. And so you gather together as a community every week to actually seek something that can bear the weight of your desire to see and experience glory. So I thought to myself, what is a practical application of this? How do we increase the probability that the Holy Spirit will do this to us? We can't change ourselves, right? It's, it's a work of the Holy Spirit to take what we know and to increase our belief and our love for it. But how can we open to the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our lives? I thought I have a couple ways. A couple spiritual disciplines. One is scripture meditation. Notice I said scripture meditation. We read for, in many ways, we're all taught to read for information, for instance. If you went through all the tests in high school and stuff, it's speed and comprehension. (laughs) That's what we read for, speed and comprehension. Now, that's cool. We read for success and insight. We read self-help books. We read um, uh, leadership books, maybe. Um, We even read the Bible for success and insight. You know, how how, how can I, you know, Jesus as CEO. You know, how how do I, and you know, that's cool. Because there are principles and insights there. We read often to defend our faith against others. Or a culture that, again, doesn't get it. And that's cool. But you know, the first calling of the disciple in reading scriptures is to read to actually themselves deepen their taste for the goodness, beauty, and truth. And to let their hearts be increasingly won over to it, to desire it. For the truth is, we become what we love. We become what we worship. We become what we glorify. So the first work of a Christian is to open themselves to the glory of the truth, goodness, and beauty of God most manifest in the scriptures. We don't have really time to do a teaching on what scripture meditation is this morning. But I would offer simply this. That in your time privately or in groups, that when you open the scriptures, you would expect the spirit to be present. It may not be in a flame, it may not be in an earthquake, it may not be in thunder. But when you open the scriptures, the Spirit is hovering over the scriptures, wanting to give you something. It may be a still small voice. Just open to the presence of the Holy Spirit. Pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's always already there. And really what you're doing is praying that you'll be present to the Holy Spirit. And sometimes you will confront things in the scriptures that you'll have to acknowledge, you know, the scriptures... Believe this is so good and true and beautiful and I'm not there yet. They talk about the, the glory, for instance, of, of going two miles with someone uh, when they've only asked you to go one. The goodness of that. And you may be honest and say, you know, I just don't. I'm spent. And so, of course, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but it's good information. Oh, Lord, 
Spirit, illuminate my heart to want this. To want this. Really, scripture meditation is what Paul says in Philippians 4.8, to notice whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, and that's our definition of glory, noticing something good and praising it, let your mind meditate on these things. Open to the Holy Spirit. Um, so even in your, in, your, in your biblical reading, just to kind of linger over Scripture and let the Holy Spirit, again, it may be very subtle, and some days it may be completely dry. But the, it is, this is not a trying to create a spiritual experience. This is a training over time. Not a trying, a training in opening to the Spirit week after week, and in particular in His Word. So the first practice I would recommend to you is, is Scripture meditation. And maybe there's room in your groups or otherwise to learn more about what that looks like. The second practice I'd recommend is gratitude. One of the ways we glory in things is we are grateful for them. We retaste the goodness of something when we uh, are thankful for it. So one of the practices I recommend to you is just the end of the day with your spouse or with a roommate or even with God alone. Just look back over the day and just turn to him and say, wasn't this good? It could have been a text from a friend who encouraged you and just said, you know, wow, relationships, I'm so grateful. Because after all we do and all we do, isn't that true? That it's our relationships and even reconciliation that is truly good and beautiful. It may be that we reflect on a point in the day we actually obeyed. (laughs) We actually overcame some annoyance when we might have acted otherwise, but we didn't. We did um, what we were called to do. And that is worthy of gratitude. To say, you know, that was a great moment. I'm so thankful that I was able to respond that way. It might be natural beauty. The great thing about natural beauty is natural beauty doesn't care about our lives. <laughs> we think our lives are so horrible, and sometimes they are, but we look at natural beauty, and it just, it's like God just, you know, God's just, just going to go on. He loves us, but his, his kingdom is going to go on. And sometimes the natural beauty of the world just kind of has a sense of permanence. It will always be good. And so just commenting on natural beauty, the, I was walking, I sometimes walk four to five miles a day. Um, if you heard 45 miles a day, that's fine. About four to five miles a day. I'm a professional walker. I didn't say that when we started. Um, and just for me, you know, I've seen a great blue heron on the side of the road near Irvine Avenue. Well, I know we got wonders of technology and everything, but man, well, Lord, thank you for your creation. And so as we, at the end of the day, taking 10 minutes just to kind of go through, and really, and there might be many things we're thankful for, but to let our hearts be recalibrated by what is truly good, truly true, and truly beautiful. And then I'll mention a third way that we come to taste the goodness, and especially taste the goodness of the gospel, and that's through confession. The practice of confession, of course, is where we bring our sins and shortcomings to God, and it is in part for repentance, it is in part for humility, But it's in part to retaste the goodness of the gospel. To say again, oh my gosh, thank goodness for the cross, huh? And you know, the older you get as a Christian, I'll I'll share a little secret with you if you haven't discovered already. The older and more mature you get as a Christian, the more powerfully you experience your sin. (laughs) Bummer. 
Ah, but you know what that opportunity is? That as you grow smaller, the cross grows larger. Oh my gosh, thank goodness for the cross. Oh my gosh. So the practice of confession is not just throwing sin over my shoulder, kind of naming it and throwing it. It is the ability to go back to God and say, Oh, look, here's me. Oh, thank goodness for the cross. My goodness. So I want to close by, and this is what we do in my church, including the prayers of the people that you heard earlier. I just just want to close in a practice of confession. Now, for some of you, your clothing or your joints will not allow you to kneel, and that is cool. You can sit. Others of you, where your joints and your clothing will allow, I invite you now actually to take a posture of kneeling as we pray this prayer together. going to ask you to pray with me the first part of this prayer and then I'm going to lead you through a little um, time and then we'll pray the second part of the prayer. But take a look on the screen and will you pray this aloud with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. These are helpful categories now, so let's just walk through them. So in thought, word, and deed. So just now what we're doing is we're opening to the Holy Spirit. No condemnation, but there may be some sorrow and that's okay. But really good information. So let's just take thoughts. How about in the last 24 hours, where has your mind been? To confess means literally to agree with God. We're just agreeing with God about the truth of ourselves, which we can do because of the cross. We don't have to... Prayer is the last place to hide and cover. So yeah, just ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, is there anything in my thoughts that have just gone the other way from you? Envy, bitterness, fantasy. I just open to that truth. Um... So there may be nothing, but just let the Holy Spirit bring anything to mind and just say, well, yeah, that's, that's true. How about in the area of words now? Thought, word, and deed, words. Is there anything you've said last, you know, recent history, recent memory, last 24 hours that you thought, yeah, Lord, I agree, that was not helpful. Uh, That was not encouraging. That was actually uh, a sin. It could be, again, something a little too sarcastic, a little too biting. Uh, Could be that you really won the argument but left that person decimated. Um, could be that it's a total lie. Well, Lord, we open to this truth. Holy Spirit, if there's anything we've said in, in recent memory that we now go, oh, no, that was not good, Lord. Just open to the truth of that.
And how about in the area of deeds? Anything you've done in recent memory? Um, this would kind of include our, our addictions. Um, but any acts uh, you've done that, oh Lord, that is, that is something I want to repent of. Repentance is looking, is, uh, looking for life in a different direction. So, Lord, be open to that truth. And in this last category of things left undone, well, there's a hundred things, of course, we could do. But this is more something we've been resisting over time, something the Lord has asked us to do, a relationship to mend or at least to extend um, oneself toward it could be um, uh, it could be beginning a spiritual discipline that we put off uh, because we're too busy it could be that um, yeah, could be anything but anything over time that Lord I have to admit you've been asking me to do this for a while I think that's true and I've just been resisting so I just want to agree with you that I have been resisting um, and I want to turn around it may not be anything but just open to that And now I just want you to take one of those sins or habits or something that's just historical for you, something that you've always struggled with and still do. And I want you just to place that in your lap and just be aware of it. Look at it. What's, what's, the, what's, the, what's, your, what's your thing? What is your, your sin tendency? Thought, word, deed, things left undone, which one? But as you put it in your lap, I want you to realize that you are sitting in the lap of your Abba. That while there may be sorrow at this, there is also love. And see if, as the hymn said, you can let sorrow and love mingle. And of course, love wins. But we can look at this because of the cross. Well, Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the good news. Nothing can ever separate from us from you. We pray that kindness would lead to repentance. That we would change the direction in which we are looking for life. Because you offer us life. Oh, and that is so good. Will you please stand? And would you please say with me the second part of this prayer? Because we not only want to do what's right, we want to love and delight in what is right. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So will you please pray with me? For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.